On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. And we're back. I am Louis Fertel, now the sole survivor of Keep It. I've successfully eliminated all of my competition. Uh, you will remember last week that Aida Osman, our friend, host of Keep It, was here. She has to attend to personal matters for the next couple of weeks, so she is gone yet again. I know it seems like she's negging you, the incel community, but she's not. <laughs> I swear she will be back. But uh, today I have two of just my all-time favorites here, including last week's co-champion of Keep It, Guy Branham. Welcome back. Good to be here. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to hear it because you need to be here. Uh, <laughs> and also, my dear friend, Solomon Giorgio, we're returning Hi. to Keep It himself. I'm so thrilled you guys are both here. Welcome to the show. Happy I mean, to do it's, it. It's Akbar in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm actually going to start with Akbar right off the top. Solomon and I, last week... Yes. We're at a bar, Akbar, a famous gay bar in LA. Mm-hmm. I've brought it up before. There was a child next to us of maybe 23 years of age. He was yes. wearing a scarf. He was one of these people, okay? Mm-hmm. So he thought he knew everything. <laughs> this bastard sits down, and he, out of nowhere, like a maniac, like somebody on drugs, mm-hmm. says, Where are the good Paula Abdul songs? And calls her a hack to yes. us. Oh my God. Yes. yes. Solomon and I, who are, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of Akbar, <laughs> we like belong on the board, freak the fuck out. We start explaining to this child, first of all, Paula Abdul, for the for the longest time, held the record for number one hits on an album yes. with Forever Your Girl. We, we had to explain to this child that she made Janet Jackson move, as in yes. she's like... <laughs> She was the animator of Janet yeah. Jackson. It is literally Janet Jackson's pivotal moment in change in her dance moves is Paula Abdul. <laughs> yes. I mean, the way that you love me. I mean, oh, yes. It, like that, that tape, as it should only be referred to, was <laughs> truly nothing but hits in a way that we didn't experience again until five young ladies were put together by a music producer <laughs> in London and gave us. 20 nothing but hits over the course of two albums like that's but also i feel like isn't it a definitive experience of being a gay boy who has decided he is wise for his age mm-hmm. um to say bullshit like that and then be um ground to dust by the likes of you two like how will they learn otherwise look i the, the soapbox that we pulled out and the, <laughs> the level of shrillness our voices got to based on the disrespect <laughs> No, uh, it, was, it, it was like Statler and Waldorf going through puberty is what it sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> and also, yeah, I mean, like I, I kept going. My, like, my mind was reeling. I was like, maybe she was an easy hire for American Idol and had nothing going on at that time. But you have no idea what was going on during the Spellbound era with Vibology, with uh, mm-hmm. Rush Rush. So it's just it, it was stressful to me that I had to basically give the entire Wikipedia for Paula Abdul to somebody yeah. who was trying to upset me to begin yes. with, I believe. Christ. 
Well, I mean, if male homosexuality means anything, um, it is seeing a woman and saying, who's she? Mm -hmm. Uh, as the photos behind Lewis of uh, Sandy Dennis and Lee Grant (laughs) currently attest. That's right. And just the the fact that this boy has not done the reading for class, really, he needs to reevaluate himself. And also, it's like once upon... I mean, nowadays, it feels like actually most of our pop stars wear blazers and leotards, but Paula, I believe, originated that, you know? Yes. Maybe Maybe Vanity Six was first. I don't know. (laughs) I, but we'll have, I'll have to go to the books on that one. She like just like her VMA performances alone should settle her like in history and not to have that knowledge. That's just a shame. That's a true shame. Now we've set the groundwork for what we're the dynamic I'm establishing here today, which is gay know-it-allism at its finest. That's what keep it is today. Um, yes. uh, we have a lot of fun stuff going on. First of all, Simon Rex is here. And if you have not seen the film Red Rocket yet, which is uh, the newest Sean Baker joint. He, of course, did Tangerine and uh, Florida Project. Simon Rex turns it the fuck out. I thought it was going to be a good performance. This is a competitive performance. As I'm thinking, is it him or Will Smith or Andrew Garfield I like the most? Uh, So I'm thrilled to be talking with him today. And we'll be getting into what we're missing without the Golden Globes in the world. Uh, I found I was lacking a lot of drunken Tom Hanks action over the weekend. (laughs) So we'll get into what's up with that. And of course, it wouldn't be Keep It in 2022 if we didn't unpack a few horrifying celebrity deaths. Uh, and I thought we would start off with one I don't believe we spent enough time talking about, period, which was Sidney Poitier. Did yeah. you guys go to town and watch anything of his? Because I actually watched three of his movies this weekend. Which ones? I, I had actually seen them all before. But uh, uh, my favorite, which is A Patch of Blue, which I feel mm-hmm. like goes under disgust. Um, to Sir with Love, because we were very into London school teaching for a while <laughs> in, so- in society. And then also, uh, guess who's coming to dinner, which I think has aged the least well, but we really needed him in movies, I guess exclusively, just yeah. to teach people lessons for a while. Yeah. He, w- he, was, yeah. he was like the, the, the crossing guard of society, like just like telling white people mm-hmm. where to walk and how to be for a little while. I mean, it's it's one of the things... Um, I, which one did he... The one with the nuns that he won the Academy Award oh, Lil, for. Oh, Lilies of the Field, yes. Lilies of the Field almost... I mean, at a point in time when we require... We truly did require that of Sidney Poitier from every film. Like, Lilies of the Field is almost the one that just sort of, like, gets to sit on its own terms the most and just be a cute, dumb, little sister acty sort of, like, comedy with nuns. And, it, like, it makes me happy that that's what he won for instead of one of these more turgid, what if a black man and a white man had to be handcuffed together for a period of time? <laughs> well, he's like, for me, I will always remember Heat of the Night because that is the first time, I think, in cinematic history we had uh, a movie about a cop on, and on, on well, like, that's had it. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's like, I'm done with this job. I hate everything about it. Like, it's very much like the Denzel Washington. Like, that's, like, other, uh, other black actors made whole careers out of this, like, I fed up black man at a job uh, character that Sidney Poitier created for Heat of the Night. And I just, yeah, he's he's really set the groundwork for so much acting that is still done to this day. There's also something about him, like, even though in a lot of these movies, in retrospect, it feels like he's just being didactic or, you know, having to deal with idiots. And a lot of the time you're watching him and thinking, I wish he was just with other characters who were as, like, rad as he is, you know, because he often didn't get to be. Um, But I think the thing that makes it particularly watchable even now is there's always something about him that felt discerning. So even if something is, like... Uh, tedious on one level with the other characters in the movie, you can see on his face 
it's registering deeply how annoying it is. And even though he's using restraint and uh, 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 diplomacy to handle the situation, you could almost see in his mind like a shut the fuck up, <laughs> <Yes>. you know? <laughs> Lewis, have, have you found the TV Academy's, um, the, the v- videos of TV legends that they have all over YouTube? Oh, oh, um, I, excuse me. I, we just talked about Betty White last week. I mean, like all these people have these amazing interviews. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they're really good. But the ones, I watched a long one with Sidney Poitier where he was talking about how his literacy journey sort of shaped his delivery as um, an actor because, like, you know, he came from the Bahamas when he was really young. He was having to work from a really young age. He had to leave school when he was 12. And about how being somebody who spent several years of his life was sort of like, you know, low literacy levels and then, like, working with, like, uh, a waiter at one of his jobs to get better at reading like longer words like that he basically chewed on these words and delivered them and and thought about them and there was something in like a Catherine Hepburny kind of way so unique about his delivery because he was thinking and being in words as he was saying them yes no there is something about the declarative nature of what he's saying even when he's not having a big monologue that yeah. is very engaging and also would not work with almost anybody nowadays. It's like the yeah. best kind of acting you can do in 1967. <laughs> <laughs> Though it is fun watching him and uh, Catherine Hepburn, who is, I mean, a world-class trembler, but trembling throughout. Yes. Guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> well, also, I mean, I have no class of films that I love more than films Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy decided to do because they were going to prove a point. Your Adam's <laughs> Rib, your Guess Who's Coming to Dinner... That's a movie that also culminates with Spencer Tracy explaining that he's learned something, which is so, it, it's just such a hilarious way to tie up a movie. Like, oh, thank God it's your journey I'm on throughout this whole fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but also watching, like, like Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn are both gigantic performers. Spencer Tracy is, like, dying during the movie. So, and but his performances were also always at a four. And then also you've got Catherine Hepburn's niece there. God knows why. <laughs> and this is this is her literal niece. Catherine yes. Houghton plays uh, his uh, fiancé in the movie. You also brought up a good point, Guy, on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, about how Sidney Poitier in obituaries was rarely referred to as Sir Sidney Poitier. Yes. Yeah. No, it was, I could only find the Times of London that was doing it. And I mean, um, he was a life, like, that his death was announced by the government of the Bahamas because yeah. there's no more famous Bahamian. Um, but it was really interesting to me that he was not referred to as such by, I think, any, anyone I could find other than the Times of London. And it was just one of those moments of, like, is this person getting the respect that they would have gotten if they were a white Briton, you know? Right. It's We, we just simply forgot to make that a part of his name sometimes, whereas like yes. Dame Maggie Smith, I mean, those are the four syllables that go together. You know right. what I mean? So thank you for uh, journalistically and uh, <laughs> rather tediously at, uh, making sure we, uh, we acknowledge that he is a sir. Yes, right. <laughs> to serve with even more love. Yes, right. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about another celebrity death and then hopefully launch into a more optimistic conversation uh, via Bob Saget and discuss camaraderie and comedy. We're with two stand-ups today. Maybe they have a bunch of friends in comedy. Maybe they're all alone. We'll discover it in a moment. (laughs) 
Uh, on Sunday night, a house in heaven got a little fuller. Ooh, Brian is getting... <laughs> <laughs> Brian Samuel is getting spicy with the intros this week. <laughs> Beloved dirty stand-up turned sitcom dad Bob Saget died at the age of 65 very unexpectedly. As soon as news of his passing dropped, comedians from every generation began sharing their stories. And frankly, I knew they would. There's something always about uh, a funny person passing away where I can expect hearing not just funny stories about them, but how like they have a very particular special bond with the people they worked with for years, ran into on the road for years. And I just wanted to talk with you two about what the fuck that is. What What <laughs> is this like familial thing that necessarily happens between comedians? Is it always a good thing? Do you experience it yourself? Yeah, I feel like there's the bond that we have is that we feel like we went through, we experienced the trenches of starting stand-up, uh, which is truly a hellscape uh, that only comedians understand. So whenever we lose one, it's such a big impact, especially somebody who has no one has anything mean to say about, uh, which is always impressive for a male comic, especially. Yeah, I mean, it like I, Solomon, I don't know how many I, experiences you had with Bob Saget. I, I only really had one, but the really cool thing about it was it was also a situation um, where he and uh, John Stamos were working together again and seeing like their rapport and charm with one another and how much they loved with mm-hmm. each other was really lovely. But the thing I will say about Bob Saget is like, he made the dirtiest jokes and he made the meanest jokes, but he also had a sense of like stand-up should come with a sense of humility because okay. you're gonna fail. And he <laughs> always had that sense of humility. And there is there's just such a difference between somebody like taking a like a like a dig at someone or something, mm-hmm. but being able to just sort of say, like, that was a joke and not need to turn it into yeah a lifestyle or a philosophy, which I, you know, I think is really what saved him. Uh, Like also just being so funny. Like the thing is, is when you're a level of funny, when you have a level of confidence with the work that you're doing, you don't necessarily need to like double down on HGH or anti-vaxxing or how trans people aren't people. (laughs) That's very true. And I think like for me, I think people like they, they do such a big juxtaposition from his uh, role as Danny Tanner to his standup. And I think that person exists in both, like, you can have those characteristics uh, in one person. Somebody who will tell the filthiest, grossest jokes and still be still be able to portray an amazing dad because he has those aspects. And I think that's, like, I, for me, I will always, there's always going to be that camaraderie. But I also, like, him, he's, like, a special treat. Because no one, like, the character of Daddy Tanner, which is, like, the most effeminate father figure on television <laughs> <laughs> ever created... Uh, and being able to make that character come to life, that's just, not anybody can just do that. Somebody has to have that in their heart. First of all, Robert Reed, a.k.a. Mike Brady, would like a word. Because <laughs> that was a queenie-ass dad. And you can look at the way he is an architect, just for starters. Very true, just, but he was the straight lines alone. That's true, that's true, that's true. <laughs> well, actually, what's interesting to me is, as you said, people are um, describing the juxtaposition of who he was on Full House with who he was as a comic. But honestly, you can sort of see the layers in Full House. Like, he's being very sweet, but there's always something registering in his eyes, like a note of cynicism or a note of resignment. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, what's coming to mind is like John Arbuckle from Garfield. It's like, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm doing my best with these rascals, but gulp, I'm who I am. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's that little bit of edge that say maybe other stand-up comedians who were in the cast of Full House weren't bringing to the table because they were too busy with puppets. Um, But one thing that was so 
like interest like a weird thing about stand up is like we lose a lot of people. We have lost a lot of people to suicide. We have lost a lot of people to drugs. We have lost a lot of people to, you know, the random things that that kill people was my weird mix of emotions about the fact that this dude died in a Ritz-Carlton in Florida, which is like, on the one hand, this very sort of like sad, he died alone, you know, and you're very much sort of like, which of these is going to take me? When yeah. Brody Stevens took his own life, there was a little bit of me that was like, will this be me one day? And when Bob Saget died in a Ritz-Carlton in Florida, it was like, will this be me one day? But there's also this way that it's like, he died with his sword in his hand. Yeah, In this right. very sort of like interesting way where I can't see it as sad because like he had like children and a, a wife um, and family and all of that. But there's also something so beautiful that this other part of his life was built up and like his last tweet was about how much he was loving the process of being on stage again solomon like what are your feelings when when these things happen um it's it is it is so so sad but it's also like i based on the person's like especially something like him like he has a legacy that that's gonna last forever and that's kind of what we all want as comics is like even regardless of how we pass away we want our impact to be stronger than our death and he managed to do that he managed to be one of the few comics to become such an insane multi-hyphenate that we can't even fully consider him just a stand-up comic anymore he's he's literally more than that so that's why he that's so much that's i think that's one thing we all want is just to leave this world uh, with a with an impact that will last forever it's fucking crazy that his last tweet is him being like, I just realized how much I'm appreciating this moment of yeah. what I do. I mean, it was like the end of a, a movie written by Nicholas Sparks or something. <laughs> you know? Um, no, it reminds me of uh, uh, one of my old favorites who I bring up a lot. I'm sure I've discussed her with guys several times, but Cass Elliot, yeah. like minutes yeah. before she died, was on the phone with Michelle Phillips, fellow mama of Mamas and the Papas, saying... Uh, she had just gotten a standing ovation and couldn't believe how well her concert went. It's like, I'm not saying I want you to die after something like that happens, but <laughs> yeah. there is just something so poetically satisfying to my simple mind about things like that, you know? But, I mean, Lewis, to sort of like the broader question you were asking about, like camaraderie and stand-up is, there is this way that you feel bonded to these people or that you have a set of experiences that you share and you just understand them. And there's also this way that like, we within our community are constantly sharing in this very strange way. Like, the vast majority of the time I learn about Solomon's life, you know, sometimes it is at a bar, but a lot of the time it is just from a joke that he is telling or something like that. And you, like, know these people and you have such a strange relationship with them. But one of the things that has been really hard and complex over the last couple of years is the conditional status that's given to some people within that world. The frequency with which, um, you know, women or queer people who push back within stand-up suddenly aren't comics anymore. Yeah. Like, we uh, we have this friend who sort of, like, had a tussle with a more established comic, you know, five or six years ago, and... You know, he's he's somebody who figured out that he made a mistake, and so I'm not going to say his name. But in all of it, he was referred to as a comic, and she was referred to as a blogger. Mm. And, like, this is a comic who was running shows and running mics and doing more to keep the comedy world alive than that dude was at that point in time. And it just kind of kills me that that kind of solidarity that I give so lovingly to so many of these people 
can be conditionally denied to people yeah. like me. I agree. Uh, <laughs> and but I feel like that's there's always going to be gatekeeping in this uh, in this wonderful world of ours. Uh, and but that's but we're defiant, which I think is nice. And we also have people uh, that are also up, up top that do a great job of uh, making sure that we're still considered stand ups. <laughs> is it annoying to kind of um, have to be, quote unquote, grateful to the people who basically reach out and make sure you feel like a human member of the community just because you're black or gay yeah. or something and needing someone from the top like i don't know like like for years just for example on twitter you know who's always retweeted me i mean it's a simple mm -hmm. gesture who cares but um like pat Oswalt, yeah. a part of me is still in my mind thinking oh that's so nice of him it's like yeah. I, I mean and it's not not nice of him but why am i like grateful it's like no i'm fucking funny why wouldn't you retweet yeah. me anyway it, but it's one of those things where you're you grow up thinking like as a queer person, like, all right, a part of me is always a little bit of like, not embarrassing to straight people, but like a little bit much for them. And yeah. so when they reach out to you and, you know, make you and say to other people, oh, this person's funny, it feels not just like, I think this is funny, but mm -hmm. advocating for something that you might be uncomfortable yeah. with. And it's like, but anyway, I just think that's like a weird like self self-deprecating thing yeah. I go through sometimes dealing with other straight funny people. Yeah, I'm looking up the definition of the word grateful. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever attempted it, but I'll uh, give it a try one day. <laughs> the thing is just like when I started many, many years ago, like the system was so man to man that I can't help but be grateful. You know, I can't help but be grateful of the the like straight guys who are broad-minded enough to think that they could take a woman they're not having sex mm -hmm. with on the road right. or a gay mm -hmm. person on the road. And also like it was a time when so so many of the gay men who were working were just like there's only enough room for one that they didn't have the space in their minds or hearts to be generous with stuff like that, which is why I'm so much more grateful to someone like Wanda Sykes, who has just been consistently present for women, people of color, and queer people, and is like, she and her partner, Paige Hurwitz, have made yeah. a business out of this. And I like being grateful. <laughs> like, there's just something, it, like, it's, it's just so nice to, instead of focusing on, because there's so much negative to focus on, and because it is, as Solomon said, it's a hard business, and there are gatekeepers. And when you find people who are kind enough to be generous, it's mm -hmm. just so lovely. And I also think as a reminder, like you have enough to be generous. In yeah. whatever position you are in, you have enough to be generous. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm on board. I do fully agree. Like the great I definitely I am grateful, but I'm not specifically grateful to anybody straight or male. Like that's I feel like they should give me like in those situations, I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely just as funny as you are. I'm not like, but people who like, because there is, like, a lot of the gatekeeping that I've seen, it's also by people that fall in the same category as me, where I'm like, that's what I, like, I'm definitely, when there's those of us who are still open and willing to, like, bring on other people, that's what I'm like, this is wonderful. To, to not get, to not be mad and angry at the world for making you go through something and therefore having to throw it on other people. That's the kind of situations I despise, and I love it when I don't have it. Because at the end of the day... At, like a certain level of talent allows you to not be bitter because you're like, yeah. well, I'm going to go be on stage and be funny. And the people who are working hard enough to say you're not a stand up probably aren't that funny and have just been at the club for over yeah. seven years. <laughs> well, it reminded me of how annoying the conversation about the recent Dave Chappelle special was because he while delivering 
for instance, the, the turf agenda or whatever was going on there. No one ever said, well, this isn't stand up. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. when Hannah Gadsby had her special and had whatever three minutes where she's explaining a terrible event, suddenly people are obsessed with announcing it's a one woman show and not stand up anymore. Well, and it's like, why is this distinction important only now? <laughs> to be fair, Hannah Gatsby was like, well, I'm not doing stand-up anymore, which kind of pissed me off because it lets everyone have their cake and eat it, yeah. too. Mm. It lets the Chappelle people be like, she's not a real stand-up, and it lets queer people and women like be like smugly like, we're better than stand-up. And it's like, no, I'm exactly as good as stand-up. And it, it pisses me off a little bit that, look, uh, like, I, I was Nanette impacted me and it made me think about the thing that I do differently and I really respect it. But it's also like Jacqueline Novak did a fucking hour of nothing but dick jokes that contemplated women's perspective in this world and what it means to have a body. And that is what makes me happy is people who are bringing their intelligence and their talent to the table Mm -hmm. to take this this form that I love and is so much fun and fill it with different perspectives that show us our lives differently. Just, that special well, is called um, get, it, get on Your Knees, correct? I want to give Jacqueline Novak the yes. full credit there. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, I know. Like, no, I just, for, for me, it's like anybody who tries to put specific boundaries in the world of stand-up is not a true stand-up to me. That's where I find the issue with anyone who says these are the, this is, look, all, all that's required is you going on that stage and making people laugh. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's not even required, honestly. It's <laughs> just going yes. on that stage, really. But... That's essentially what it is. And I'm not going to. Yeah, I, I feel like it's just unfair to uh, strip the uh, the meaning of what it is based on what your personal definition of what stand up is. And I don't I don't think it's fair. And I and I think it's always if you don't sh- if you don't show up to appreciate stand up with an open mind, then why are you even there? Honestly. <laughs> Solomon, it sounds like you're sticking your neck out for Che Diaz on and just like that. <laughs> I believe she has the potential to be funny. Or pardon me, I, be- I believe they have the potential yeah. to be funny. Yes. Um, I'm. I only. I've only been watching and just like that through memes, so I'm not 100 sure. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I think you got the gist. I'll be honest. <laughs> Yeah, not much new nuance left to plumb there. I don't think. <laughs> Do you guys have just favorite uh, comics you're friends with who you you rather unexpectedly ended up friends with? Um, I, I mean, like my oldest school best friend from stand up is this like comedy seller comic in New York, Louis Katz, who is just mm. sort of like who is who disagrees with me about all of this stuff almost, but he's like interested and engaged in having conversations like you know he's basically someone who's always going to tell me that i'm wrong about you know the newest Chappelle hour or whatever and we'll fight about it but it's fun and he's interesting and he's smart and that's why it is really fun like these times and moments when like someone as talking and thinking and I am hanging around with somebody who gets on stage and just fights with a microphone for 10 minutes or whatever. Like it is all of these different styles and voices. Our friend Emily Heller once said, it's the most diverse art form I've ever been a Mm -hmm. part of. And it's Mm -hmm. just true because when you get on stage, whoever is there is in charge. Like, yeah, like Dave Chappelle can command a room when he's behind a microphone, but a part in Anchurla, the quietest, most retiring, most thoughtful of others human being is also a cruel tyrant when she is behind that microphone. And I love it. <laughs> That's true. I, I just want to say that one time I was at uh, Guy's Seder, which mm-hmm. 
at the time the term had to be basically explained to me. I famously <laughs> did not meet a Jewish person until I was 18. But <laughs> I was sat next to Aparna and this is years and years ago. I don't think I even knew who she was yet. And she wasn't saying much. And I was like doing, you know, I was doing my like nervously over social thing. And it occurred to me very quickly, this person was legions ahead of me in terms of funny and just like deploying like the softest bombs. And like, uh, uh, it wasn't deflating to me exactly, but I didn't know what I was in for. And I think she constantly delivers that as a standup. Mm-hmm. The softest bombs is the best way of describing her. <laughs> yeah. See, can my, my compatriot uh, is Marcel Arguello. And that is, oh, is that's queen. old. And I, there's parts of me that I'm like, we're very similar. I'm like, no, we're not. She is in a different <laughs> league of like, commanding that I wish I could get but in my head I am her but that's not true at all <laughs> <laughs> I love she is just um, very in addition to funny strident like there's yes. something about her that says like I actually don't give a fuck and a lot of people would claim that and her delivery and, and also when you know her like her like yeah. her like radness her niceness also indicates that yes you know? I, like I in the dumbest most depressive New Year's way DM'd her and came at her about something dumb on Twitter, and she Marcella'd back at me so hard, and then, like, I just sort of... But with... Like, Marcella Arguello is the kind of comic I respect most, who is the hardest and the kindest at the same time, and it was just, like, within the past three months... The best articulation of what stand-up is is what that woman presented me of not backing down, telling me why I was wrong, and when I apologize, telling me you don't have to apologize. This is just who we are. And I am so grateful. Like, getting to be a stand-up comedian is one of the richest things in my life. I love it like I love my family. I love it like I love being gay. And um, it's why it's so beautiful to see people reach out with so much love yeah. uh, when something tragic like this happens. And I, my answer would, of course, be you two. It would probably be my answers for, like, stand-ups I'm happiest to know. But also <laughs> specifically because, like, something that really upsets me is the amount of times you hear in a discussion about why something is offensive or whatever that, quote-unquote, funny is funny, and that's where the c- conversation ends. But I think with, like, the comics I care about anyway – the conversation's never over. It's barely begun. You can always yeah. get into it. And the, it, like getting into the zeros and ones of comedy is never not fun to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, staying super articulate and super um, just aware of what we're doing when we're being funny mm-hmm. and who we're appealing to and who we're maybe even leaving out sometimes yeah. is like always interesting because it's never just funny is funny. There's always, yeah. a, it's funny to someone and it's not funny to someone and there's a why. Yeah. And I'm, I, I just think from, from that part, um, there's always something to learn there and always something interesting. Oh, so anyway, thank you for being a part of that conversation. When we're back, why don't we hang out with Simon Rex? Should be great. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. 
With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is a real renaissance man. You might know him as an MTV VJ. Actually, it's fascinating the ways you may know who this person is. Really interesting. You might know him as a comedy staple of the early aughts, might know him as a rapper, but in his newest incarnation, he's an Oscar contender for his leading role in Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Please welcome Simon Rex. Welcome to Keep It. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. Uh, forgive me if, if I'm a little jet lag. I just got off an airplane and raced right over. But sometimes being jet lag and out of it adds to comedy and more fun. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, so, wow. helps. <laughs> You're like a comedy scientist. You're aware of it, what, what goes into that, the potion of this. I'm not that smart. I just have a theory that sometimes, like, I, I actually it's sort of how this movie Red Rocket happened. Sometimes uh, the less you try and the less you overthink it the more magic happens so it, let's have some magic well something that's interesting to me is so you're obviously thrust into a gigantic press junket right now which i am sure is like an upheaval of your life in certain ways how is it just answering a hundred questions about one experience again and again is it do, do you take to it well yeah it just becomes like a, 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 a like a muscle memory or something and and uh you know i haven't had anything like this in about 10 years so it's been a while since i even had to to do a movie like red rocket and do press like this uh it's been a decade so it, it took a minute to get you know um back into the groove but then once you get in the flow it just becomes just natural and you, you as you just indicated i didn't realize this when i was watching the movie you got this role the starring role in this sean baker movie something like three days before it started filming and you drove yourself to the location so you wouldn't have to be quarantined? Yeah, so how it happened was um, I, had, I, w I live in Joshua Tree out in the desert and I was just, it, this was July 2020 and there was not much going on for anybody, especially like shooting films and things. And, and uh, I get a phone call from a friend who, who's friends with Sean Baker's sister and she goes, hey, do you know who Sean Baker is? I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, he wants to, uh, can I give him your phone number? He wants to call you. Oh yeah, no problem. So he calls me and says, Hey, Simon, I know this is crazy. Can you do me a favor and just read this one paragraph and put it on your phone? It was this phone and send it to me. So I just basically did a cold read, uh, which means not very rehearsed, like what we were just talking about, less planning. And I just did it right here on my phone and sent it to him and he loved it. And the next day he called me up and he said, um, I need you in Texas in three days. But if I fly you here, we have to quarantine you. 
and that would fall into production. So you need to drive here. So we have a rental car <laughs> waiting for you down the street. Get over here. And I basically just drove three days from Joshua Tree to Southeast Texas and um, basically just had to like work on the script in hotel rooms because <laughs> it was a three-day drive and, and, and kind of as I was driving down, you know, a straight road for hundreds of miles and it just got thrown right. I got thrown right into it. But I, again, I think that's it, it worked for this film because the character and, and the uh, the whole way this film was made was very low budget guerrilla indie, almost felt like a student film. We had a 10 person crew. We were just running and gunning. So it kind of made sense and worked because uh, if I had rehearsed it for three months every day, it might have lost the magic. Uh, I should establish quickly before we get into our question. This is a movie about a porn star returning home to his very rural hometown and basically disrupting everybody's lives with his rampant narcissism and his uh, amazing personality, but also uh, shocking personality. Uh, I will now defer to my co-hosts if they would like to ask about this tremendous performance, yeah. which, by the way, better get you nominated for an Oscar. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. Like, there are some, like, superstars in, in the running this year, and you are fucking just as good as them. So I am yeah, so fucking you. psyched yeah. if it well, happens. Yeah. I mean, thank you. That's what my question is, because, like, so much of your career has been a mix of acting and hosting and personality work and stuff like that. And with, like, such a big character like this, were you surprised that, like, the L.A. Film Critics Association and all of these people have been able to recognize it as an acting performance and not just as, like, an extension of your persona? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh I didn't even know what the LA Film Critic Association was until I got it. Like I, I yeah. haven't been, even when I was working a lot as an actor 20 years ago, it was doing movies like Scary Movie, which is great. You know, those movies are awesome. They're funny. They're, you know, for the whole family. There's, they're, they're uh, I, I, I love doing those very broad comedies, um, but I never was in any films that would, you know, get me attention from, from any film critics or awards, you know, this, so this is all new to me. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, I knew when we were shooting the movie that we had something special. You could just tell sometimes. But I've been wrong before. I've been on movie sets where you're shooting something you're like this is it. This is going to be amazing. And you go see it. And you're like, what happened? How did this movie get sabotaged? And on the other side of the coin, I've done films that I was like, oh, this movie's going to suck. And it came out good. So I've learned to just I don't know anything. But with Sean Baker. Just seeing his films and knowing that he's the writer, you know, he's the casting director, the writer, the director and the editor, that his vision was going to be, you know, his vision as opposed to having producers standing over his shoulder telling him, oh, you got to do this. And, the, you know, I mean, he even chooses the font on the poster. I mean, he does <laughs> everything. And I felt very safe in his hands. And actually going backwards a little bit, when he called me to come do the movie, he said, Simon, I know you don't know me, but do you trust me? And I did. I did. And I never met him before. I said, I do trust you. He said, OK, good, because um, you're not going to make any money. I'm not going to make any money. <laughs> I just need you to get out here. We're going to make a really cool movie. And um, I don't want to deal with your agents or managers because we have no time to negotiate the contract. Trust me. You're going to just make barely any money and we're going to make a cool movie. I said, I'm in. Oh, Did that great. answer your question? Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> okay. I kind of went off on a tangent there. <laughs> it was no, it was very true to your character in the movie, actually. As far mm -hmm. as I know, yeah. this is this is all good uh uh junketeering. You're you're selling the character very well. That actually goes back to what you were saying about how you know, I think 
there's a huge difference between me and the character of Mikey Saber in our moral compass and our ethics. And, but I think that my, like I could talk a hundred miles an hour, like he can. The difference is, is that he's manipulating people and he's hurting people and he's just, you know, not aware of his actions. I could talk a hundred miles an hour, but I'm hyper cognizant of being uh, hurting people and not, you know, not rocking the boat. So it's easy for me to tap into the, uh, you know, the, the fast dialogue, which this movie required. Um, but, you know, it's all about intention. And I, I think I, I, the thing with Mikey is that I think that the saving grace is a lot of people say when they see this movie, they're like, why am I rooting for this guy? I don't understand. It's, I feel conflicted, which is that's good writing on Sean's part. And it's because I, maybe Mikey doesn't know what he's doing. And he's, it's like a little dog pissing on the rug. And it's like, oh, I can't get mad at him. He's just a puppy peeing on the rug. He doesn't mean to. So I feel like that's what works for this film is that his intentions might not be bad. Maybe he's just on survival autopilot. And everyone can relate to that on a human level. And he's just surviving. So, but it's very easy for me to ba 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 I mean, I, I want to add that you literally are calling to mind friends I have who are lots of fun. They're an adventure. Every time you go out with them, they bring, quote unquote, the party. But in fact, they are a baby. Like you, it's like you're 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 strapping yourself into some caution tape when you're hanging out with them. But like, that's the whole point of being with them, ultimately. Yeah, we all know this guy or girl. We have them in our family that we work with them. We went to school with them. We know them. So I think that's another reason why this movie works and this character works is because we've all been exhausted by this person, yet we find them charming and endearing. But yet my mom calls them energy vampires. Like you hang out with them for 10 minutes and you're just you're sucked of your life force. And you're like, why do I feel like I need a nap after hanging out with this person for 10 minutes? Jesus. So. It's, it was easy for me to play because I, I live in L.A. for 20 years. I'm surrounded by delusional <laughs> narcissists that think they're mm. going to make it in show business. So it was very easy for me to portray this type of personality type. I don't I, I can't clinically diagnose it, but I would say he's a narcissistic sociopath, possibly. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm no doctor. Is that a this, this this town <laughs> runs on that, though. So yeah. he's, he's like he's a, an essential cog in the industry. Exactly. He's a cock in this industry. Sorry, had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you've had, like, a really varied and fun and interesting career, but, like, this this film is changing your profile and perspective. Like, what would you like to get to do yeah. because this is happening for you? Like, what would be a cool next step? That's a great question. I'm having a lot. Of, it's funny because uh, the offers are pouring in. Uh, you know, a, a year ago, I would have killed for some of these offers that are coming in. And for the first time in a very long time, I'm saying no to things because I want to do the right thing. And I think the question is, I always want to do comedy. You know, this movie is a dark comedy, but it also has a lot of real grounded, vulnerable serious, dramatic acting moments. And I think that's what people are surprised to see that I always knew I could do, but I was never given an opportunity to. And that's Sean saw it in me and gave me the chance. Thank you, Sean Baker, was that, you know, people saw me as this scary movie guy who could slip on a banana peel or the MTV VJ who could cheesy host or dirt nasty my music persona. But I was never looked at as like a real actor until now. So I would love to do some like some serious, you know, dramatic roles and then do some really fun, silly comedies, you know, um, 
similar to like, you know, how Robin Williams or Jim Carrey or, you know, some of the, the best comedic actors do really good drama. So I'm not comparing myself to them, but, you know, or Bill Murray, you know, like some of the best can do both. And I believe that I'm capable of doing both. So I would do my version of that, whatever that looks like, you know. I mean, I would say some of our best our most memorable dramatic performances have been from comedic perform. You know, like Monique comes to mind, people yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, coming up, you're in a movie with Diane Keaton, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I imagine stars of that caliber take to you immediately because you seem, quote unquote, real. I mean, I, I don't, if, if you yourself are a sociopath, you're hiding it very well. You seem very <laughs> real. Um, I, do the do people like her just look at you and be like, what is this guy on? I just love it. Are you called neat constantly by uh, Diane Keaton? Well, that, we, we only worked together for one day, but we got to improv together and I'll never forget. It was just one day of work and uh, I, I play a, a, a new age bullshit um, shaman who, who uh, turns um, a young woman into an old woman, Diane Keaton. And then I revert her back to a young woman at the end of the movie. And, uh, I'm basically like a, a new age huckster. And, um, we had one day together and I'll never forget after improving with her, she pulled me aside and she goes, you're good kid. And I remember <laughs> that was one of those moments that was like a feather in the cap that I called my mom. I was like, you won't believe what Diane Keaton just said to me. So yes, yeah, she took she was very sweet with me. We only worked together a day, so I didn't get to hang with her too much. But she did just see Red Rocket and called me up walking out of the theater, hyperventilating. Simon, oh, my God, Simon, I can't believe what I just saw. Uh, you know, just did her whole Diane Heaton thing. I'm doing a horrible <laughs> impression. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like working with her. I have another movie coming out with Zach Quinto and Lucas Gage called Down Low, which is a lot of fun. Um, so I got a couple other, those are really broad comedies. So yeah, to answer your question, I think it'd be cool to maybe go another direction mm -hmm. next do some, some dramatic stuff, but who, who, you know, it's exciting. I don't know what this looks like on the other side. Uh, yeah. I'm going to look at all these offers and mm -hmm. pick the right thing. And I just want to work. I, you know, I'm old enough now. I've been caught in that trap before 20 years ago about money and fame and like getting caught up in that, that at this point in my life. I've realized I don't need money or fame to be happy. And it's actually quite the opposite. They both complicate your life so much mm -hmm. that now all I want, I just, all I want out of this is to work. If I could get a couple of accolades along the way, great, but I, that's not my intention. I just want to get more work and have yeah. some, you know, create cool shit. So I think that'll happen. We'll see. I like I like that you said that Diane Keaton was a feather in your cap while well, she probably was wearing a cap with a feather. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so yeah, clearly you had a great experience with Sean Baker. Is there a director that you are like you're another one that you'd be happy thrilled to work with? Um, I love the Safdie brothers. Uh, mm. I love Gus Van Sant, who funny enough is the reason I'm an actor is because of Gus Van Sant. Mm. I'm, I'm sure I've told this story a million times, but it's kind of a cool one. When I worked at MTV. 25 years ago, Gus Van Sant saw me on MTV and he called me into audition for Goodwill Hunting. And I went in and I read with him and Matt Damon for a very small role of a bully that Matt Damon beats up. It was just two lines. I somehow managed to butcher those lines because I've never acted before. And uh, Gus stopped me and he's like, Simon, stop. Uh, you're not you're not ready for this, but you should go to acting school because you have something and I see it. So I went to acting school in New York and started studying like Stanislavski method class and, you know, putting up scenes from plays and I just don't improv classes. And I was like, well, if Gus Van Sant sees something in me, I should listen. And I, I trust him. I, you know, I, I, I love 
you know, Drugstore Cowboy, Rumblefish. I mean, he's one of the best directors ever. So it would be really cool 25 years later to work with Gus Van Sant. <laughs> I mean, I could name a million directors. I, I just, it's really about working with good yeah. directors, to your point. It really is. Uh, and that's the thing is I'm getting great offers. Um, but I, the main thing for me will be like, who's the director? Yeah. Do you have a favorite memory from the MTV era. It just in being friends with Dave Holmes, who has talked about that, like he was he was there in the late 90s. So he was there at like the the uh, the rise of Britney Spears, etc. It was just an insane total request live time. Like so much tension is paid to you. And yet also, I think he was like bartending on the side. It's this like high, low fame situation. Do you have any particular favorite moments from that era? Yeah, I had a lot. Um, Let's see. Uh, I remember uh, interviewing, um, I remember interviewing Tupac Shakur might've been one of the top ones because it's Tupac Shakur. And I remember that happening so much because I remember when I worked at MTV, uh, I I would meet all these celebrities and I remember being really underwhelmed and they always say, you don't want to meet your heroes because you'll be like, Oh, that's it. Like, uh, Oh, I, I, that's not the magic that I saw on screen and like, wish I never met them and not, and not to talk shit, just more like it's better to keep it a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I remember with Tupac, when he walked in the room, he lit up a room, I think more than any other human being I've ever seen in my entire life. It was like, he was like a God or something. And, and I, and, and just being honest, I wasn't even a huge Tupac fan and I'm from the Bay area where he is God, you know, he's like from, you know, that's, that's his stomping grounds. And I was more of a Biggie Smalls fan, which you you don't say where I'm from. You always got to go with Tupac, but when he walked in the room, I felt something that was so unbelievable. And I'm like, oh my God, I get it. It's not just about his rap skills. This dude is like on another level. So that w- that stood out to me the most. And, I, and recently my buddy went into the archives and found the actual VHS cassette. It took weeks and they had an intern digging in these old vaults of cassettes and they found the Tupac interview and it's on YouTube. If anyone wants to watch it, you can type in Simon Rex Tupac interview and watch it. And uh, it's cringy to watch, but that was that was the probably the highlight um, of, of of like everybody that I met. Um, because of him, we have the movie Poetic Justice and a scene where <laughs> Janet Jackson says the word Punani. So I'm <laughs> forever in, indebted and grateful to Tupac for, for introducing the word Punani to the lexicon. Or what? And, to, and yes, and to me as like a six year old. Yeah, Simon, like you are being very. Zen and relaxed and appreciative about this entire process, but also you're being interviewed by three high-strung gay guys who care too much about award shows. And so I want to ask you, what is your strategy going into this award season? Because yes, being a good actor, like having a gracious and relaxed approach to an industry you've been in for 25 years, those are all fine things for being a human being, but also you are going into war right now. You have to be... (laughs) Proving yourself, what what is your strategy? Then let us give you advice. <laughs> okay, um, my strategy is, <laughs> I, you know, my strategy is is that I, I don't know if I I have one. It's kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Sometimes, like my theory in life is like no plan is the best plan, and let the magic happen. In a weird way, I feel like the movie speaks for itself. I can step back and let my team, who I have around me, who's doing such an amazing job, do their thing. And, and I can sit here and just have these honest conversations with people like you, because I, I don't know how much I can control 
uh, with the outcome of, of some of these awards. And, and to be totally honest, I've already won all of these awards along these film festivals and, you know, uh, the L.A. Film Critics Association and, and you know, um, honoree at the Marin Film Festival in, 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 in Deauville, France. I mean, I've got I have all these best actor awards on my shelves right now. I never thought any of this would happen. It could end right now. And I won. So anything else is a bonus, and that's truly my attitude. And and I was told by a couple people in, in the industry that on this little run I'm going on, they're like, don't get caught up in the Oscar hype. It's going <laughs> to make you crazy. Don't read all the articles. It'll drive you nuts. You know, just that's my advice to you is like, don't don't sit there Googling it all day because it's going to make you go crazy. Yeah. So I try not to overlook because I'll, my mom will send me articles. Look, honey, they're saying you're number seven for a possible Oscar. I'm like, uh, this could drive you crazy. So I, I'm just doing my best to to not uh, download and digest too much uh, articles and things because it can make, you know, it's, it's kind of a head fuck, you know. Um, I don't know how much control I have over it at this point. I I just got to do these things and talk about it and, and hope that um, that, you know, the people in the Academy will, will will take to a movie like this because it is you know, it is a little edgy for a, a, like an Oscar film, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. and that's and that's okay. I think that's why Sean made this movie. He likes to do movies that make you think and are polarizing and pushing the envelope. Is it envelope or envelope? <laughs> <laughs> if you want the Oscar, you say envelope. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, um, here, here's my here, here's my advice. I love the okay. way you were talking about just being in the moment and taking what comes at you. Of course, Los Angeles is like, uh, of course, award shows are a head fuck. Los Angeles is a head fuck. You've already experienced the head fuck. What I want to know from a potential Simon Rex victory is that I'm going to fucking cry. Like, <laughs> I, I, I want to fucking cry that you, after the journey and the battle of a career that you have had for all the ups and all the downs, that you are being honored in that way. Like, I want this level of honesty. Please don't be dignified. I do not want Dame Helen Mirren if Simon <laughs> Rex wins a fucking SAG award or an Oscar. I want you to be as honest as you are now because I will fucking weep like crazy. <laughs> I also just want to say that crying on a red car. If you cried to Ryan Seacrest, that would also help. Yeah. You know, if, like, if, I, if I see Simon Rex bawling, like, oh, it's all led up to this or whatever. You know, anyway, you know the narrative. Right. Yeah. So, you, you're, so you're saying you mean if I win and make my acceptance speech, how I handle that? Is that what you mean by that? Well, yes. But I also think well, that part well, of the campaigning is us knowing what we'll get when um, when somebody wins. And I think that's how you handle yourself in all of this stuff. It, like, I, I think that this is a really beautiful approach that you are taking of just being appreciative and respectful, but also honest about everything. And I think that because it will make everybody, people will be more likely to vote for somebody if they feel like they're going to get a special moment than if they're going to get somebody, you know, who doesn't show up or is receiving an award for the third time or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think right now we all live in the twilight zone and everything's upside down. So in a weird way, me being here kind of totally makes sense because nothing yeah. makes sense right now. Right. So <laughs> I'm part of this narrative of the world being upside down. So it's kind of like couldn't be better timing. And maybe that will work to my benefit because I think times are changing so much. And I think after the last two years of realizing what's important during this pandemic, that like maybe we could be more relaxed about things like nudity and sex. It's like, can we just grow up a little bit, guys? Like I you know, as a, as as a society and a country, we are so sexually wound up. You know, when we were in Europe doing this movie, 
they don't give a shit in America. <laughs> in America, it's like, oh, he has, you know, he's, he's naked. It's like, okay, and I was born naked. So I don't care. Um, so I, I, yeah, that's my attitude about it. And you know, to me, in a weird way, like even just get, like even if I just got a nomination, that would be like the biggest win ever. Even almost more so than winning in a weird way, because if you win an Oscar, like where do you go from there? I remember Mark yeah. Ronson told me, my friend Mark Ronson, name drop. He won uh, the Grammy for uh, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, whatever it was for uh, Uptown Funk. And he told me he sat there with his Grammy for three days like, I did it. I'm at the top of the mountain. I made it. I'm, I'm done. And then three days later, it hit him. He goes, oh, shit. Now what? Yeah. <sighs> like, oh, I, I got to do the next bigger mm -hmm. thing. Like, you, you can't just kick back. Like, so I think what would come with that would be so crazy. And I still want to be able to just go to a restaurant or a, or a corner store and not be like, harassed too much so it'd be kind of cool to be like get all the 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 perks of being nominated um without being having to hide from the world like yeah. like leonardo dicaprio or someone who just can't go walk down the street because that's kind of scary but hey look whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen i'll take it either way <laughs> i you know i i, I, I just want to say also that um well what mark ronson did afterwards was win an oscar and then become meryl streep's <laughs> son-in-law so there are places you can go yeah, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Simon Rex, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been such an an expectedly amazing interview, and the movie thank is you. so good. You guys must see Red Rocket and see it in a theater, so you can have yes. every large facial expression possible to what goes down in this movie. Yeah, please go see it in the theater. It's only, I think it's only in the U.S. theaters for like another month or so, and it's like spread out over different cities. And it's all if you go to my Instagram, everyone listening, it's uh, Simon Rex four one five, or my Twitter is Simon Rex, and I have like the link. And and the dates and locations of where it's playing. So yeah, go see it in the theater. And if not, uh, it'll be streaming probably in a, a month or so. But yeah, please go see it because the movie theaters are dying. And I, I miss, I, I, one thing I've learned from this whole festival run is, man, I miss going to the movies. Like I forgot what this oh, yeah. was like. It's like a magical experience that's slowly dying. And we need to hold on to that. And Sean Baker is, uh, is such a you know, proponent for keeping us going to the movie theater where there's no distractions. You can't pause it. You can't look at your phone. Well, you can't look at your phone, but you're being a dick. Um, <laughs> so yeah, go to the theater. Thank you. Thank you so much. We will be right back. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Well, I was hanging out at my favorite comedy club on Sunday, and by that I mean Twitter. And <laughs> you know what was going on there? The entire Golden Globes. This is what I mean. They didn't broadcast the Golden Globes this year because the world agreed 
they basically shouldn't exist. And the HFBA hasn't been reformed yet. So instead of having any ceremony whatsoever, they simply put on Twitter each of the category's winners. There were, in fact, nominees this year. And the tweets themselves were a spectacle since they were clearly pre-written templates. And there was one famous screw-up where... In the tweet announcing West Side Story had won best musical or comedy, they said, laughter is the best medicine. And in that case, West Side Story is the cure for what ails you. Like they were kind of counting on a real comedy to win and instead a musical one. And in fact, it's a musical where it's basically about gang members killing each other. So it wasn't really chock full of laughs. Um, Anyway, it was another embarrassment. But... I was just sad not to get a real Golden Globes. I can't explain it. There's something about this award show that in its utter pointlessness, in its utter, you know, being the Palm Sunday before the (laughs) Easter of the Oscars, I just needed. And I was wondering if you guys felt that uh, abyss also. Um, Initially, no. uh, Until they finally awarded uh, the first trans actress a Golden Globe. And then I'm like, yes, then that's when you should be televised. When you actually make history, when you finally decide to do the right thing as a company, and you're like, we'll just do it in the, in the, in, it's like, they might as well just send somebody with bad breath to tell you the fucking winners in your ear. Like, it really was like the worst <laughs> way to give that news out. Uh, Solomon's referring to MJ Rodriguez, yes. who uh, won for Pose. Can I say something about MJ Rodriguez? Can more people please talk about how she constantly summons the image of Cher to me? Oh. Literally <laughs> watching her, the, the way she like moves her face, it, it's like, like suspect era share uh <laughs> and that's prime by the way if you know 1987 it was a very special time for share i just love the globes i miss yeah. the globes like i i love that they're a shit show like i love everybody getting drunk all i want to see is rita wilson and don gummer sitting around tables cracking <laughs> wines with the people around them and it just it's so sad that like the hollywood foreign press dug its it's heels in so hard about being a weird racist organization. Like it's the Hollywood foreign press. There are lots of foreign countries that cover our films. Thank God. Um, you know, it's like we, we need to be doing more to build ties to other parts of the world. If we want to keep making this many movies and having them uh, make money, it's, it would not be that hard to include more people of color in their decision-making process. And I, it's weird because the Golden Globes are both a fun, ridiculous show, except when Richie, Ricky Gervais is hosting. Correct. Um, but they are, like, um, also a racket. Like, they are a weird, like, a weird scam that 87, like, half-assed journalists have run on, like, this city ever since Sharon Stone was sending them Cartier watches so she could get nominated for The Muse. Um, <laughs> and so, like, that point is just, like, become a slightly better racket yeah. because we do love the product that you're making. But then the other point, the Ricky Gervais, like... The heights of Tina and Amy hosting versus the depths of Ricky Gervais. And I just, like, I have complex feelings about this, but please stop letting straight guys who don't like a cat, who don't like award shows host award shows. Like, there are perfectly good Billy Eichners out there. Like, there are perfectly good Solomon Giorgios who could do Che Diaz. I mean, I think we'd all <laughs> like to see Che Diaz host the Independent Spirit Awards. Yes, right. Um, oh, God, the rap they would do. Um <laughs> But, like, it's just frustrating to me. And I have to accept that, like, one out of every 
like one out of half of the Super Bowls, we do get a gay center to an extremely male activity. I just feel like they they feel the need to let these dudes host these award shows so that they're not annoying for the guys who watch. And it's like, maybe accept that it's 2022 and guys aren't watching. Women and gay guys are. So let one of us host these shows and enjoy it and have fun with it because talking about how shitty they are while, while they're happening is from the 90s. I have layered thoughts about this. First of all, if Che Diaz is hosting the Independent Spirit Awards, how many seconds in before they say... No one's more dependent on spirits than me. Because first of all, <laughs> within the first five seconds, bitch. I'm writing that monologue, motherfucker. Um, but secondly, no, there's actually now a somewhat serious tradition of the eye-rolling man taking uh, yeah. the dais at award shows. I mean, I, I, I'm at least happy that there is one famous flop occasion of this, which is the David Letterman Oscars. You yes. know, because the to, to me, the thing that was the worst about the famous moment where he keeps introducing Uma Thurman to Oprah Winfrey and he says Uma to Oprah and he's like just repeating the sounds again and again like expecting to get a laugh out of it and it lands with a thud is that he tried to be so cynical that everyone would be on his side and instead everyone was like no we're trying to enjoy the Oscars mm -hmm. can you just make the normal jokes yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. like be Billy Crystal please you know <laughs> See, uh, Billy Chris is a showman, though. Well, yes, <laughs> and that's a like that's that's the kind of host you should have. Somebody who's like you're a performer. Like, yeah, you do jokes as well, but and like a Whoopi Goldberg is another one that's like you were phenomenal hosting, but I, I don't know. Like for me, like it's always I feel like they're all such a racket, and the Golden Globes was so obvious about it that I kind of love that. At, like they were they were a little more hokey pokey about it, and I kind of enjoy that about them. And I, 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 I it's. I'm trying to find the words to say it. It's like it's like watching a high school performance of a musical instead of a Broadway one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, the th and the thing I love most about the Golden Globes is that because it is just like 90 people running a racket, like they truly can create moments and they have consistently like named princesses, like best actress in like a comedy on television, they have been like Rachel Bloom, you're a princess. Yeah. Gina Rodriguez, you're a princess. And like, I really liked that this year they were saying like MJ Rodriguez, you're the princess, but we didn't get to have that yeah. moment, you know? And I think that they have had a little bit more of an eye to what the future is when it comes to television than the Emmys, which have a nasty habit of, I mean, they've gotten better in the last couple of years, but there have been so many runs of the Emmys where it was just like, ah, yes, Julia Louis-Dreyfus takes home her 9,000th Emmy. What a different year. But I have to say, though, that's what I like about the Emmys, because there's something that should be hostile about an award show sticking to its guns. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of appeal than the Golden Globes, which, as you Lewis said, is like creating moments. I, I, I know I don't have Lewis, to explain Oscars or whatever to you. Louis Bertal. Are you defending the Emmys giving Julia Louis-Dreyfus yet another Emmy when Lisa Kudrow for the comeback was just sitting there? When there was a singular chance to give Lisa Kudrow an award for the uh, comeback? Uh, well, that's the thing. I don't think award shows matter unless there are significant snubs. So okay. I that's think a great, that's a great argument. As a patron saint of a snub. I think Lisa Kudrow has gained some cachet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying I don't want her to have that Emmy. And of course, luckily, she already has an Emmy. But um, uh, that sticks out in my mind. Like a, par like a part of me is like, 
as Glenn Close herself has said, she's like, there's there's like a, a, a pantheon of people who have never gotten Oscars. Mm-hmm. And it's like nice to be in that company as much as it'd be nice to it have is. one. Like, oh. I, like Susan Lucci not getting an Emmy 17 times yeah. in a row, I'll remember right. for the rest of my life. And and who remembers when she got one? You yes, know? Right. I barely do. That's um, why I know the name Shamar Moore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lewis, last night I watched The Lost Daughter and I just had oh, a sure. moment of realizing like, oh, Olivia Coleman is now just going to Glenn Close for us absolutely every year. Oh, right, um, right. Was pretty exciting. Also, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks she's going to take it again. I feel like people are souring on the Kristen Stewart Spencer experience. And like, there's a dubiousness associated with the Nicole Kidman movie, even though I thought she was amazing in it. Whereas something about Olivia Coleman feels safe to vote for. I don't know Mm. what it is. It's different. Um, it's maybe it's like the quote, like the deglamming. I don't know what it is. But also, like she just she did so much in that movie. Like this almost feels like a Glenda Jacksoning, where yes, like the there you uh, go. You know, um, it's like this is her touch of class. Um, you brought up Glenda Jackson now, which just put me in my happy spot. Guys, if you don't know anything about Glenda Jackson, I think I've brought her up on this podcast before. She is a two-time Oscar-winning actress who not who, who could not give less of a fuck about the Oscars. Like, Catherine Hepburn oh. gave more of a fuck about the Oscars than Glenda <laughs> Jackson did. And then she left acting and became an MP for years and then uh, somewhat recently returned to Broadway uh, in Edward Alwey's Three Tall Woman and won a Tony for that and then played King Lear in some... Uh, another version of that. Anyway, no one's had a more distinguished career and has had harder bangs while doing it. <laughs> no, uh, the thing I wanted to say, Lewis, was I, there is possibly no more definitive test for um, whether a, a, a male child is gay than showing them being the Ricardos. But like, <laughs> because it's just so uniformly, every straight person I talk to, every like, is just like, what that? What was that movie? And I, I, tr- I, I went into it as skeptical as humanly possible, and I just walked out. Like I came out of it with like, yeah, she was real good. Yeah. Well. Well. By the way, that movie was the second coming of the, um, the people who are obsessed with Lavar Burton needs to host Jeopardy are the same people. Like, why isn't it Deborah Messing? It's like why? Because like three of you got the idea that yeah. like. LeVar Burton can can famously read, so now he needs to read these clues forever. Like, Deborah Messing, you saw her play Lucy in a sketch one time on Will and Grace, and now she needs to do the biopic of dramatic yeah. Lucy. It's like the how sure everyone was mm-hmm. contrasted with how ridiculous it would be if we gave somebody a role for that reason was so... Yeah. Strange it's insane, especially as I must just love Deborah Messing and Will and Grace. You can see the strength of her acting on Smash. It is not that, it's not that far. <laughs> Faggots have done the research on this. We were there for Smash. And the starter wife. Oh. Was that the name of that movie with yes. Deborah Messing? Oh, okay, oh, yes. Absolutely. She walked out of the ocean. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Happens sometimes. Um, yeah, anyway, so I, I I kind of worry now that, first of all, the Oscars are still a long time away uh, mm-hmm. because of COVID last year and this year. It's like uh, further along uh, in the year than it usually would be. Like, we don't have a proper predecessor to uh, the Oscars. And I, 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 again, because like very few blockbusters, well, are one nominated, but two, very few of the hyper nominated movies this year are super popular. Mm-hmm. It's like, God, this thing is going to keep deflating and deflating and i like these movies i i like talking about them and i like watching award shows about them but yeah 
I'm just there's some peril in my mind right now. I don't know. I, f- I don't know what they can do. I feel like there should be other award shows that should be bolstered more, like the Critics Choice Awards or the WGA mm-hmm. Awards. Like I think those or the SAG Awards. Like those, I think those are really good indicators that are not but fully the, uh, used to their capability. The thing yeah. is, is like people other than the SAG Awards, people don't want those things to be hoary. I guess that like if the SAG Awards are a little hoary, but I if you could I guess make the WGA awards like more of a thing but also no one wants to look at writers uh, I say this as a writer um, <laughs> but like there was something nice about like you need champagne and trash yeah and I, I like the globes for that I feel like we can do that with the Critic Choice Awards I think they can they can be sluttied up I think there's a way <laughs> yeah that's true I mean if I know critics I mean those are sluts uh, also Oh, just one last thing. There is nothing more fun than writing an award show. Lewis, I know you've done it. Oh, Solomon, sure. have you ever done oh, it? Oh, I've done it for something that I I wrote for a uh, Chinese uh, movie award show uh, that was never televised, <laughs> that was hosted by Rob Schneider, and it was one of the best days of my life. It's the best. Whoa, that, that sounds like the best fucking job. <laughs> oh, no, I wrote for the Emmys. It was just like, yeah. like patter. Come on, like, ch- to... to outstretch my arms and to feel Bruce Valanche come through me to be the conduit for all those novelty t-shirts at once. Uh, uh, Anyway, so Golden Globes, we miss what you could be and lament what you are. Uh, We'll be right back with our favorite segment of the show. Keep it. And we're back with the downright meanest part of the episode. It's keep it. Let's tell stuff to fuck off. Uh, I'm going to do the rare thing and start with myself. Uh, Ira, as you know, is not egotistical at all and would never go first. (laughs) But I will do it today. My keep it is to, and I'm sorry to do this because I'm a fan of exactly this kind of thing. Wordle. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wordle is an is a new word game that mainly I'm going to go millennials play, but it's a uh, uh, a fun format where you get one of these puzzles a day. It's a five letter word you're trying to figure out. You guess a five letter word, and then it tells you how many letters you have in the correct position and how many letters are in the word that you've chosen but they're in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And so you use that information on uh, a layer below it and you keep solving it until you get the actual word correctly. First of all, this would not be annoying if one, people didn't post their quote unquote results on Twitter where they post like a diagram that shows where they got letters right and stuff. Guys, I'm not taking in anything from this. I can't, mm-hmm. I don't look at your game and think, here he is, the next Nikola Tesla. Like what am I supposed to think <laughs> about you? Solving a five-letter word. First of all, it's just not that difficult to task. Literally, if you posted the time you completed a crossword, that gives me more information than this would. And also, it's an ugly thing to look at. I don't want to look at like 15 boxes and some of them are green. It's just, it's gross. Aesthetically, I don't like it. And then third of all, did the world forget about the game show Lingo, which existed (laughs) in the 2000s? Yes. It is this exact game. It was on Game Show Network. There's no way it wasn't the most popular show on Game Show Network. It was hosted by conservative enemy Chuck Woolery, who <laughs> I know I've gone on this monologue before. His most famous accomplishment, aside from hosting, I guess, Love Connection, is that he was the original host of Wheel of Fortune before, in a failed contract negotiation, he lost Wheel of Fortune to Pat Sajak, who famously still has that show. Uh, anyway... 
it's this exact game where you have a five-letter word to figure out, and then you use clues based on previous guesses to solve the puzzle. Did we forget this? It's all over YouTube. I hate that this is a new game we're playing. I used to play this on online all the time. So I'm sad that people have no cultural memory for this exact <laughs> motherfucking thing. It's the exact game. So... Also, you can easily alter your score. It's I've I've done it already. I've posted once and I just like deleted the rows above. I'm like, see, I got it in one try. <laughs> <laughs> also, the thing about this also is because there's only one a day, what's stopping you from like using other people's postings online to help you solve it? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know? So like if somebody posts like a screenshot of their game or something, clearly that would help you out. Well, you have to know well, you still have to know the word like the letters they use because it doesn't give that. Uh, right. But, but I have seen people post literally a screenshot of the game they are playing. Like they use the with the with the letters in them. Well, that's uh, just that's not, that's not helping anyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Guy, you strike me as a wordle player. Are you in tears? I mean, I've done it three times. I like that there's deductive reasoning involved. Sure. No, it's like, um, do you ever play Mastermind? That old like a uh, Milton no. Bradley game where you have four colored pegs and mm. you have to your opponent has to guess what they are and you you basically indicate where they're right and where the art or orders off. And uh, it's, it's something that would be in a gifted classroom. Like was, I was in <laughs> when I was in second grade, mean Mrs. Conlon would just put out, put it out in front of us and we would have to, you know, become Alan Turing or something. <laughs> anyway, that's my keep it guy. We'll go to you next since I believe you are accustomed to rancor and we'll share it. Well, uh, I would like to say to adaptogens, keep it. Um, I, but why? Because of the temptation of witchcraft. Because, like, and, and adaptogens, like ashwagandha, or the other day I uh, was um, getting uh, some kombucha because I needed some probiotics in my life, and there was a weird potion that had adaptogenic mushrooms in it, and I ended up spending, like, three or four dollars for a dumb potion that will do nothing for me, but it's always tempting. And I love that adaptogens have managed to make their bullshit promise so vague that it's not even like more energy, lose weight or anything like that. Adaptogens are just like, well, what you need. What adapt these mushrooms will figure out what's missing in your life and it will be able to like find you a boyfriend or heal your <laughs> spleen. We don't know what it is. Something um, very Unitarian church about this. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I like part of why I'm demanding that they keep themselves is that it is such a tempting and insidious promise um and it, like it, there's something very uh something wicked this way comes you know sort of <laughs> like store full of mysteries uh needful things that kind of thing about what adaptogens are offering do i at the end of the day think that they are um satan incarnate yes um like i feel like this is um you know uh like um the Essentially, I was trying to think of one of the other names for the devil, but it's like early in the morning. <laughs> Beelzebub, um, yes. Beelzebub, <laughs> um, like uh, offering us vague rewards in exchange for our soul or $4. Yes. So keep it adaptogens. You're really giving me flashbacks to like infomercials where like they've just come back from the lab with the breakthrough. You know, it's like, yes. and now we can sell it or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> like a I Ron Popeil kind of situation. Yes, at, right. Yeah. At least at the end of the day, you watch the Ron Popeil things happen. The stuff that you put on your feet and then they are thicker after you are done sleeping because of the toxins have come out of you. You see something where ashwagandha 
And like, I'm sure it is good and useful in its like appropriate cultural terms, but um, as taken by white people and sold to white people, um, keep it. <laughs> there should be a, col- a, a a store called "As Sold to White People." That should be. <laughs> All right, Solomon, what are you um, keeping this way? I think this is something that's been uh, a, a dominant part of our culture for the last few years, and I feel like it should have gone away during the pandemic, but it just refused to. And that is, for me, my keep it is grind culture. Uh, oh, I was going to say culture. Ira Madison. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, grind culture, hustle culture, being booked and busy. I really, let's, it's the end of the world. Let's calm down. I think uh, the terminology should just fully die. Uh, relax. <laughs> like, at the end times, I think we're not uh, partying and having as much of a good time, and people are just being very uh, focused on work and I don't care for it yeah I, uh, let's I feel like we should scale down um what's the word I'm looking for uh hope uh, and mm-hmm. and uh working that hard I feel like it's yeah it's just that toxic positivity of like if you just put your fucking head to the ground fucking just do whatever you gotta do I'm like I don't care for it I never liked it I don't enjoy it and I personally uh want to die <laughs> I also just think like and I'm I'm not like a, a chronically productive person but even during the times when I am awfully productive there's no such thing to me as feeling like i've done enough yeah so if you're gonna like focus on that as a high i just feel like you're always gonna come up short because yeah. like are you you'll, you'll hit it one day and then the next day you won't and then that'll be on your mind it's sort of like exercise like yes. you can never like get to the i did it point like you never graduate you know yeah because i've like for me like i like I, growing up in an immigrant household and having that extremely hard work ethic my whole life i just you know what i'm like i feel like my parents worked that hard so i could take two naps a day uh, and I'm going to now. <laughs> I'd like to make two points. The first one is I have long hoped that COVID-19 just makes us Europe. Like after <laughs> all of this, we're like six hour work day. Sure. We don't need to get that done. You know, um, like maybe you can't reach someone on the phone until after they're done having lunch. Like That's just yes. the way it's going to go. My second point, Lewis, that was a very interesting point about with exercise, you're never there. That's why I like I think that is like there is a there but only for the you on instagram like Mm -hmm. you eventually capture that perfectly realized you and then that person gets to look down on you as your body uh decays and fails (laughs) (laughs) setting up your own enemy for years that's nice um no i I, i'm actually obsessed with um fitness messaging on instagram uh, and tiktok now i see where like just fully somebody will start a video with here's what you're doing wrong at the gym it's like you don't fucking see what i'm doing at the gym why are you coming at me with this from this place of condescension? And yet I'm offended. I want to speak out like they see me, but they don't. Anyway. <laughs> it's all inaccurate messaging. I feel like it's just it's just I feel like we don't give the like rest needs to happen. And I think like it's just the way capitalism works is effectively making you think that being busy is you being successful. And it is not. I feel like the most successful people do the least amount of work during the day sometimes. <laughs> Well, no, but that's the thing is it tells you busy being is being successful when you are your own capital for workers, Mm -hmm. for people whose time is all they have. All the people who have capital are just pushing it around a little bit, then getting on the boat. Yeah, exactly. The only busy I support is Phillips. I've said it before. (laughs) When she holds a plank on Instagram, I'm right there with her. Uh, (laughs) That was a good talk show. She did a good job. <laughs> it was. Also, by the way, she is a fine actress. I just want to say, that, like, when you when you watch her in anything she's ever done, going back to Freaks and Geeks, I'm like, man, you are so lived in. Yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a, she's uh, a character actress. I don't. I think they they never get the respect they deserve. Uh, yes. Right. I just she has like a fucking rad look too. I like the look in her eyes. Anyway, we can 
Can you believe it? I can go on about <laughs> 90s originating actresses for a long time. Uh, this has been Keep It. I've had such a lovely time with, of course, you, Guy Branham, and you, Solomon Giorgio, again. Let's resume this at Akbar while we scream along to... I'll be dressed as MC Scat Cat. <laughs> I'll be Pop Duel in the Cold-Blooded, uh, Cold-Hearted Snake uh, video, which is always... <laughs> Oh, and we can explain to some child that that's based on the movie All That Jazz, which they probably haven't heard of. Well, um, I'm going to be at uh, the Arlington Draft House on the 21st and the 22nd uh, in Washington, D.C. So uh, if any Keep It listeners are in the greater Washington, D.C. area, they should come and look at me to stand up comedy. And they are comfortable. Washington, D.C. You know who's from there? The wonderful Tori Amos. Oh wow! Oh, actually, who has I'll... a great new album? I just want to say that too. I'm plugging Tori Amos's new album. Yeah. Well, I actually will be doing stand up myself uh, February 18th and 19th in Seattle, Washington, at the Crocodile, the famous Crocodile Cafe. Uh, and yeah, I'll, so if you want to see me in February, um, I guess you can. Uh, I don't recommend it, but you should. <laughs> Wait, what city was that? Seattle, Washington. Oh, Seattle. That's where Eddie Vedder is from. <laughs> He, he might be. <laughs> I, I've heard rumors. I'm from there. I'm also from there. I, I grew up there. Uh, uh, next week, Ira and Aida will not be back again, but I will be. And God help me. I hope that's enough. We will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.